0: Welcome to this special episode of Paperclip. I'm Michael Ian Black, here today with David Weil and Nikki Toscano, showrunners and executive producers of Amazon Studios' Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Set in 1977 New York City, Hunters follows a team of vigilantes whose mission is to hunt down Nazi war criminals living in America. As it draws inspiration from real-life events, including Operation Paperclip, which we've explored in the last five episodes, Hunters blends the gravity of World War II history with the gusto of an action-packed comic book, all while tackling big questions about good and evil, justice and vengeance, and whether it's possible to make peace with a haunted past. In my conversations with David and Nikki, we'll reveal some of the deeply personal stories that informed this truly unique series, which is currently streaming on Prime Video. So I'm just going to steal a line from an article that I read in Vanity Fair that says Hunter's creator and executive producer David Weil worked for years to become an overnight success. After moving to Los Angeles, David worked as a tutor, spent his nights and weekends writing. When one of his scripts landed on The Blacklist, which is an it's an annual compilation of Hollywood's favorite unproduced screenplays, the industry took notice, and David's patience and hard work paid off. And look, now he's created an original drama series for Amazon starring Al Pacino. Pretty good. Hi, David. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I hope people check out Hunters after listening to this or come to this podcast having watched Hunters and want more from it. So let's just start with some of the basics. Who are the Hunters and what is their mission? The
1: Hunters are a band of others, outsiders, individuals in society who for so long have been facing denial of their rights, of their very existence in the world. It's a group of Jewish people. There's a black activist. There's a Japanese-American Vietnam veteran, and they band together to take on this threat of escaped Nazis living in 1977 America.
0: So who is Millie in this, and how does she start to piece together what is going on?
1: I call her really the soul of the piece. She has this great moral conscience. She is this FBI agent who grew up in Harlem and is put onto a case of a NASA scientist down in Cape Canaveral, Florida, who has been found dead in her shower. Millie uncovers that this NASA scientist was, in fact, gassed. And as she goes on this investigation into who this woman was, she discovers that she was an escaped Nazi war criminal, a Nazi chemist who came to the States and started to work at NASA. And it's that little breadcrumb, that realization, that propels Millie on this journey of uncovering this true-life conspiracy called Operation Paperclip whereby the United States government brought over many Nazi scientists, engineers to the United States, placed them in positions of power um, at NASA, elsewhere in the United States government, and whitewashed their records and files.
0: Had you known about Paperclip? Is that how you got interested in this material?
1: It's not. My way to this material was a very personal one. It, It started when I was a kid, my, my grandmother, my Safda, her name was Sarah Weil, uh, she was a Holocaust survivor. She survived Auschwitz-Birkenau and, and Bergen-Belsen and the work camp at Unterlus. And when I was very young, she started to tell me and my brothers her story, her story of survival, of courage, of uh, darkness, but also of hope and, and of this this great light that she really harbored and tried to preserve during her time in the camps. And so I've become a student of the Holocaust from a very young age. It was always a part of my grandmother's history, and so thereby my own history. I really only learned about Operation Paperclip seven or eight years ago. And what was so striking is that for me, someone who has become such a student of World War II and of the Holocaust, I did not know um, about this government program. It, it started as a feeling of, of anger that... Our country brought over so many of these war criminals who perpetrated crimes against people like my grandparents and their families and exterminated them. Werner von Braun is, is, of course, the most famous of these paperclip scientists. And here he is on national television, and he has this life of fame and fortune. And it was this scintillating idea and this fear that my grandmother could be living next to the very person in small-town America who perpetrated crimes against her and her family. That was, for me, this moment of realization that this is the way in to tell my grandmother's story, a story that I had always wanted to tell.
0: She survived three camps, you said. How? How was she so resilient and strong?
1: She was such an amazing person, such a hopeful person, and such an optimist. And I think that gave her a lot of strength. But she also had this wonderful group of women, these three other women who she was incredibly close with, part family members and, and part people who she knew from from ludge uh, wudge in poland where she grew up and they were an incredible support system for one another when one was down they they lifted the other up and the four of them survived the war together and miraculously so but i think it was really this this deep friendship and partnership that did get her through and and so too you know i look at the hunters as a family as this ragtag family of sorts
0: you talk about your grandmother's optimism as her source of strength during that period in her life, and I guess after, did you ever question her about that optimism, where it sprang from, and whether it ever faltered in her darkest moments?
1: I, I didn't in part because she exuded it to question that would be like questioning if water's wet it, it just is this <laughs> feeling of like it was just so who she was it was it was so entrenched in her DNA, but she did this interview over many sessions with my cousin, Deborah Dwork, who's a Holocaust scholar. It was the first time my grandmother really told her story at length. Of course, my grandmother would tell my brothers and me the story of her trials and tribulations, but not in the excruciating detail, not with this honesty that she did with Deborah. So I almost feel like I came to know my grandmother a second time through these writings and to really feel, they felt like diary entries, things that I don't, I'm surprised she would even say like the, the deepest thoughts and the deepest recesses of her mind and heart. And so I did begin to see who my grandmother was in a more human way. I always saw her as this iconic, superheroic figure. And in this way, reading these stories, I was like, oh, and but she was human too. And it was just a really interesting marrying of two different parts of a person.
0: Is there any specific incident, anecdote, story that you would be comfortable sharing from that time in her life that you feel like exemplifies what she was all about?
1: Yes. And the story is this. Um, when she was living in the ghetto, actually, to leave the, the Ludge ghetto, it was a very dangerous thing to do. And so she did so, though, to procure food for her parents and her husband, my grandfather. But she would take off the insignia, the star, the armband, that she was Jewish, And there was this individual who would see her on this little train that she would take to go out and and to get the food, who was a Polish person, but who was not Jewish, and who knew that my grandmother was Jewish in some way. You know, I've always been so struck by these stories of the kindness of strangers. Complicity in the war has always horrified me, because I think in these very small moments, by doing something either so small in one direction, whether it's looking the other way and saving someone's life by doing that or by pointing the finger at where someone went and sending them to the death camps. I was always so fascinated by these small moments. And that was a moment that has always stuck with me, that this person offered my grandmother this gift, this kindness of looking the other way. And I always felt it was because my grandmother had some sort of light that shined within her, that there was something so attractive to her, not in terms of physical beauty, but just in terms of this gorgeous soul that she was, that so compelled this person to kind of look the other way. It played into that story of my grandmother as this very superheroic person, this otherworldly figure almost.
0: You referred to her a couple times as a, as a superhero. Was it that image that inspired this specific story, which is a kind of band of superheroes fighting evil? And it has a kind of comic booky, graphic novel-y flair to it.
1: Absolutely. Growing up, I was the biggest you know, superhero fan, comic book nerd. And so every story that I was told, I filtered through that lens. It was the way that I could understand these to a young person, very complex, very sort of depraved and also very heroic real life tales. But I think in sort of assigning my grandmother this role as superhero, it was more this notion of alter ego because my grandmother was this very short, very petite, woman with a thick accent and a blonde artificially colored bob on her head who was making chicken soup. And so that's how I knew her. But then hearing these tales of heroism and of courage, it was so difficult for me to, how could this little person have packed all that courage and all that might? And so to me, it was like, she's a superhero. You know, there's a whole secret identity that she has.
0: And it seems like each character in this show has a secret. What do you think it is that's so intriguing about how the show peels back those layers as the story unfolds?
1: One of the things that I wanted to explore is that fine line between revenge and justice, that fine line between hero and monster. And so just as our Nazis in this piece, you know, have these secrets and have these secret identities, so too was it important in any great superhero tale to assign uh, a secret within our heroes as well. And in that way, any great hero and any great villain, they're the antithesis of each other in some way, but they also have these great shared similarities. And so we all have secrets, right? But I think it's the secrets that we have and and what we do with them and how we act upon them that really define who we are. I think the other sort of journey that I wanted to take the audience on is that the Holocaust happened to Jews, to Romani people, to homosexuals, to political prisoners. It's a story that is far larger than just what happened in the 1930s and 1940s. It is a scourge and an epidemic, anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia that that affect us all. And so I didn't want this, while it is a very Jewish story, and that was very, very important to me, the specificity of of Jewishness in the story, I also wanted to ensure that it was a story that appealed to everyone, and not in the sense of wanting people to come and watch the show, but appealed to them in the sense that we are all
0: affected by the same evil. So, how did Jordan Peele get involved as an executive producer on Hunters? I heard you got him a script somehow.
1: Yeah, on paper it looks so easy, right? It really took place over time. I, I was a, a massive fan of Kean Peele, and I saw that my agent had, you know, started to represent Jordan as well at the time. And I asked my agent Dan Rabenow, who's amazing, "Hey, can I meet Jordan? I'm such a fan of Kean Peele. It's like one of the most cinematic." Satirical, brilliant things on television. So I I got to have lunch with Jordan. I was just such a fan, and we were just geeking out over you know the horror movies that we loved and the genre fair that we're into. And he had just written Get Out, and Uh and he sent it to me to read. And I read it, and he's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "It's, dude, it's perfect." I don't want to (laughs) sound, you know, like I'm I'm tooting your horn, man. But I don't have any notes. You know, I don't know what thoughts I could give you other than it's amazing. So we kept a friendship and a relationship, and it was really just me being in awe of him. And, and by the time Hunters was ready, Get Out had just come out. And I just felt like Hunters was so perfect for this brilliant company, Monkey Paw, that he and Win Rosenfeld, his partner, were building together. And so I sent it to them and they really dug it. And they really saw, hey, this really does fit into the kind of stories that we're trying to tell.
0: When you invite Jordan Peele out for lunch, I hope you paid for the lunch because you invited him out on the date. I definitely
1: did pay. I'm pretty sure. I hope I did.
0: (laughs) I'm sure he considers it even now, but I'm going to ask him. You talked about the idea of revenge versus justice. That question kind of runs through the series and is embodied by Al Pacino's character, Meyer. And you talked about your grandma's light and that she was a person of light. Do you feel like there's always a choice between light, which I'm going to say is justice and darkness, which I'm going to say is revenge. Are those things always in conflict? Do we have to choose between them?
1: I don't know that we always have the privilege of choosing between them, unfortunately. But I think there is always a choice that can be made. I guess it's the choice to what end. And and I think the scene between Meyer, played by Al Pacino, and Simon Wiesenthal, played by uh, Judd Hirsch, really personifies that. It's the, this couplet of lines that I wrote where you know, essentially, Wiesenthal is saying that what Meyer and his band of hunters is doing is not Jewish. It is not moral. It is not right. And Meyer says, but if we don't do it, we will cease to exist. If we don't fight back um, against the monsters who come to try and exterminate us, we will be gone from the world. We will be expunged from the world. And Wiesenthal says some version of, but in the act of doing that, you lose what makes you Jewish. You lose that very bone of morality. And so there are no easy answers. I don't have the answers either. I think it's really just the question that I'm posing to the audience. With my grandmother in particular, I think she would always choose the light at whatever cost, especially cost to herself, which to me is not the ultimate cost. For her, the ultimate cost would be a cost to people she loved. But I think she would choose justice over revenge. It was fascinating watching my parents watch the pilot for the first time. My mom was very much on Millie's side and on this this bent of justice only, exclusively. And my father was very much on this bent of revenge, because what else are we afforded? What else are we given in this world? It's a matter of degrees, because what the Nazis did was so heinous, so sadistic, so awful and terrible, that no matter what our band of hunters does, they will never even get close to what the Nazis did. But I think in the standards that they hold for themselves, they're playing on a different plane. And, and I think that these, these hunters are so noble that it's even the act of murder is the thing that turns them into that monster. And so for these
0: characters, what is that step too far for them? Well, I hope there will be more seasons so we can find out. The first season is really, it's great. It's action-packed with great performances. Just quickly, why was it important to introduce the character of Elizabeth Handelman, who's inspired by the real-life Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman yes. as a character at the end of the season? There are many different kinds of crime fighters. There are many different types of of
1: heroes in the show who are trying to find justice. And Elizabeth Holtzman, to me, was such a hero. She's a folk hero. Learning about what she did, setting up these commissions in Congress and pursuing these Nazis at a time where it was not politically expedient to do so, that's heroic. So I wanted to honor, I think, the real-life heroes of this fight and then to really press the audience on exploring for themselves which is the right path, which is the path that leads to the results that we really want, and which path turns us into monsters, which path preserves our moralities.
0: Well, we are looking forward to the seasons to come. Thank you so much for taking the time to let us into your world and thought process behind hunters, and I can't wait to see more. Thank you so much, David Well, Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks a lot. Nikki Toscano is an accomplished television writer and producer whose work includes the horror drama Bates Motel and the hit thriller Revenge. And today, I'm thrilled to talk to Nikki about her latest role as co showrunner and executive producer of Hunters. Nikki, hello.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're doing this. You know, we've been doing this whole podcast about the the kind of real world historical inspiration for Hunters. I know David brought his script to Jordan Peele, and Jordan agreed to serve as an executive producer on the project. How well did all of your sensibilities align or not align? I know when I work with people creatively, sometimes where the differences are is where you create something new and special. Talk to me about what that triangle was like of you and Jordan and David bringing this complicated story to life.
2: You know, I think that for us, Jordan Peele paved the way for the ambitious swing that this project was at its core because of his success with Get Out, which was an ambitious project in its own right. I, I think that he allowed us, Amazon, our partners, Sonar, to see that this could be a project where you were able to take larger swings and experiment. I think that the triangle was a constant state of challenging each other to think outside the box, to think about doing something that was original and different, and yet had something to say about the world we live in.
0: How did you go about assembling essentially your team of Avengers, but making sure they stayed grounded?
2: I think that was something that we had spoken about with all of the cast members as we were going through. We did want to have certain heightened elements to the show, but I think that it all came down to the performances of of the actors and maintaining that this was happening in a real world with real pain that was informing the violence that these people were partaking in. And I think that it was about making sure that those performances didn't feel too large for the subject matter that we were tackling.
0: There's a motif that runs through it, which is this idea of heroes and superheroes, And the production and the production design kind of reflects that. How did you begin to create this immersive world for the series and and bring this whole era to life?
2: Well, I think that the biggest challenge in this show was striking a visual balance. You've got the nineteen seventies, the sort of graphic novel esque, gritty, poppy, pulpy New York City, and then you have flashbacks to the war. And there was always a fierce amount of attention paid to making sure the balance between those worlds, while maintaining a overall tone that made it all feel as a part of like one piece. There were conversations that were had between all of the major departments, and that continued until the last frame was shot, from the director to the production design to the costume design, about bringing to life 1970s New York City, which was meant to be felt like a graphic novel, but yet grounded and authentic.
0: Are there any specific sets or locations that come to mind to you that you're particularly proud of that really capture this idea better than others?
2: Absolutely. I mean I think that my favorite it's the Meyer's secret room. Kurt Beach, our production designer, we had ad nauseum conversations about how to make this feel like a bat cave that we hadn't seen before. You know, it was originally written as a, as a basement of a sort of New York apartment uh, in Kirk Beach, changed it to taking inspiration from like a rooftop sort of conservatory. And he added in all of these amazing elements. I think that one of the challenges for him was to make it feel like a secret room, but if it's on a rooftop, it's it's going to be ex- exposed to the elements. And He came up with this wonderful idea about putting in some of the glass block that informed the design aesthetic of that time so that you were able to strike the chord between the secretive and yet have light come in not only for the daytime scenes but for our cinematographers and he really just swung and hit it out of the park it was important for that room to be a meeting place for our hunters a place where they're discussing tracking down different nazis an armory a you know sort of had medical capabilities it had maps it had all of these different things and yet Kurt brought in this super cool 70s vibe juxtaposed against that glass block. And it was cool to see it come to life.
0: I know that you've been asked about Al Pacino a lot and Logan Lerman a lot. What I haven't seen you talk about is Carol Kane, who is just one of my favorite actors and just a delight on screen. How did she come to be
2: involved? I had been a fan of Carol Kane's since I was like a little kid watching When a Stranger Calls. She has this wonderful sense of humor and she's so easily able to ingratiate herself into your heart. We wanted somebody that could feel like a Jewish grandmother, yet it was credible that she was also an arms dealer. And I think that, (laughs) I think that, you know, Carol did such a beautiful job in Hunters of grounding the heart and the pain of what it meant to be a Holocaust survivor. I feel like Carol and Saul, you know, playing Mindy and Murray gave us the ability to bring in so much Heart and soul into the piece, and a, a deeper understanding of what it meant to suffer through the atrocities of the war and how that ultimately informed them in moving forward in 1970s New York.
0: Hunters is a story about Holocaust survivors and Jews seeking vengeance. But this Avengers team, the Hunters, are multi-ethnic. They're of different generations. And it seems like the story becomes about something greater than the specific experience of Jews. I mean, more groups probably than not end up suffering persecution in some ways. And I'm wondering what kind of special resonance the show has for you.
2: I think that what attracted me to the piece was that this was about a band of others, right? A group of people who had all been persecuted, but not necessarily persecuted in the same way. And that, to me, was really interesting. You know, personally, when I was 25 years old, I fostered and adopted a 12-year-old Black kid. And I think that one of the biggest struggles that I had as a parent was my inability to ever put myself into his shoes and I think that the different generations, different ethnic backgrounds really allowed the audience the ability to put themselves in, in other people's shoes. And that's what the hope of this show is for people who don't traditionally have a superhero cape to be able to don one and kick some ass.
0: How much did you know about our Operation Paperclip, if anything, before you came into this series?
2: I knew nothing. I was not aware of it at all. I had to do um, quite a bit of research. And it was just so eye-opening that this happened and that it was real. And while we tried to portray the government's justification for what it was that they did, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it on any level.
0: Yeah, as a co-host of this podcast, that has been my issue. How do you reconcile what some of these people directly did and all of these people indirectly did with what was deemed as an overarching national security interest for the United States of America.
2: It's definitely a struggle. And, and in particular, I think for me, is that there was no judge and jury. So many of these war criminals came over without facing any kind of justice.
0: When you look at somebody like Werner von Braun, who now is almost a beloved figure in American history because of his contributions to the American space program, I wonder if it makes you reevaluate more of American history, knowing this little snippet.
2: Learning about Operation Paperclip and what had happened there. I think that there's a, a number of different historical periods that we could delve into and probably have a similar level of jaw-dropping, holy shit moments. You know,
0: I know there's probably infinite number of television series just waiting to be made from from crazy American history. Do you have a favorite episode in the
2: series? Oh, wow. I really loved episode eight. I thought it was such a beautiful examination of not just the love between Mindy and Murray, but what he meant to this group of hunters and the real stakes of what they were doing. When I read that script, written by David Weil and Charlie Kassler, I was just emotionally wrecked. It was just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work.
0: And what about a favorite scene? from any of the series?
2: I mean, I wrote this episode, so this is going to sound bad, but I loved the dance (laughs) number. I loved the dance number and then the haunting nature of Jonah's grandmother appearing in the concentration camp uniform.
0: Where does the idea of a dance number come from in this context? Was there any um, pushback from anybody when that was pitched?
2: I think that one of the biggest things that David and I set out to do was to take a swing with this series and do things that pushed the envelope and that made people think and that presented things in a way that maybe weren't part of a traditional narrative structure. When I was coming up with that, it was it was about coming up with a, a metaphor for what Jonah's headspace was in that moment, which was returning to his life and what that meant and. Of course, it was inspired by a lot of weed, <laughs> and, <laughs> but it was sort of meant to be a different way of punctuating his struggle in the episode.
0: You've talked about taking a big swing with this series, and it does. Is that what you're most proud of in general with this show, or is there, or is there something that you can point to as, yeah, this is the aspect of the show that really fills me with pride?
2: The aspect of the show that really fills me with pride is the idea of representing this band of others and putting out something into the world that says that many different generations that anybody can wear a superhero cape. That's the thing that inspired me most about being a part of this and, and continues to inspire.
0: Well, Nikki Toscano, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about Hunters. It's a really fun, action-packed show with great performances. And the fact that it stems from this kernel of true American history is really fascinating. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Amazon Studios or the LA Times.